And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You all know Nicole Wallace as the very smart host of Deadline White House each weekday on MSNBC. I've known her as a opponent. She was on the opposite side of the presidential race in 2008, a very skilled and seasoned White House veteran and campaign communications operative. We had a chance to sit down this week to talk about her journey, this surreal presidential race and how much politics has changed in the 12 years since we were on opposite sides. Here's that conversation. Nicole Wallace, it's it's great to see you. Normally, the way I do this podcast is I start sort of sequentially and I talk to people about their lives, but it feels like we got to sort of touch on the story of the day that, or the story of the middle of the night. Uh, (laughs) And I thought of you, uh, you know, the president, first lady, positive for coronavirus. I thought of you because, A, we've both worked in the White House, and B, you've written novels about the White House. And I I was wondering, could she have dreamed of a plot like this? No, but, you know, I I thought of you too, and I thought of all the little things that presidents do well, I thought about two things. I, I thought about their sort of struggles to take care of themselves during the most stressful professional and personal chapters of their lives. Um, and I know um, President Obama and President Bush worked out. Um, mm-hmm. Laura Bush took really good care of herself. And Michelle Obama as well, yeah. Right. And it was never, when you work, it's, it's not about vanity. It's about taking care of yourself so that you can take care of the country. And I actually have been thinking since about four in the morning that it's just mm-hmm. another way that he doesn't understand that the job is about taking care of the country. And he famously doesn't take care of himself. He's got a fast food addiction, as do many Americans. But there's not been any notable effort to take care of himself in any way, up to and including not wearing a mask, not social distancing, having any of that White House essential staff work from home. I mean, I I, I, I work from home. I, I anchor a newscast from home because Phil Griffin and all my bosses at NBC wanted us out in March. They called me and said, where do you want to work from? You know, we're getting everybody out. And we're still, by and large, out. Um, so I thought it was just another remarkable display of his ignorance about what the job for most men who've had it entails. The sort of supreme irony of this is that he's been so resistant to, um, to setting the right example for people and for being, he's been so resistant to being straight with people about the severity of the virus and what, what it required. And now through his own uh, illness, he's become an example of just how serious it is. We do have to wear masks. We do have to socially distance. And yes, the virus is still out there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he wouldn't say it. On Tuesday night, he ridiculed uh, Vice President Biden for wearing a mask. Think about that. I mean, I, I don't even, my, my son's eight. Um, we have a few families that we're sort of in a quarantine pod with, just a couple. I, I don't see children make fun of each other for masks. They sort of 
you know, oh, is that an unspeakable mask? That's cool. I mean, they've taken it as part of this cultural moment. And to have a president from a debate stage mock his opponent for wearing a mask it was just... Well, and then go on was, to rallies and apparently going to an event on Thursday knowing that his closest aide with whom he had been within the previous couple of days had tested positive. Yeah, that all that said, you, you, you hope uh, that that he has a, a, a speedy recovery. The first lady has a speedy recovery. The of country course. want the country will will want that. But what does it do to the? What do you think it does? First of all, let me say, what do you think about as a former communications director in the White House? What do you think about how they've handled this? Because they knew that Hope Hicks had tested positive on Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. and uh, did not share that information. That's another thing I couldn't imagine. Actually, you know, uh, there are things there's so many things that I couldn't imagine having been in the White House. Yeah. Um, having been done uh, that have been done over the past four years. But this this that was pretty stunning too. the press secretary had a press briefing yesterday and made no mention of it. And didn't wear a mask from the podium yeah. where I mean, talking is one of those spreading behaviors. Um, look. I want to think that Hope Hicks maybe was very sick, and so they brought her home on Air Force One as a way of taking care of her. But I can't square that with all the people they put at risk. And as you know, the president has access to a large fleet. If she was sick and he wanted to take care of her, they could have brought her home on an, on another jet. Um, they probably should have for the protection of the people that work on those flights to keep us, not just the president, but the president's staff comfortable and well-fed. Um, they endangered so many people putting on Air Force One. And I, I, I'm sure you feel the same way about the folks you met on that plane. They were some of the dearest, kindest, oh, sweetest my goodness, yes. people. They would make you anything they could find. And it's pretty amazing what they could find in the kitchen yeah, on Air yeah, Force One. Yeah, it is incredible. It it's is incredible. In- so they're selfless. They are. They are. I, that was... When I left the White House, that was one of the, the hard things was saying goodbye to, uh, to people like that. But, you know, we also should say, like, where is the White House medical staff? And are they being just ignored? Are they being bowled over like the, like everyone else seems to be? Uh, because you would have thought they would have insisted on certain things. Uh, right. That that didn't happen. Well, we will see. Now, what, what impact do you think this has on the campaign? I have no idea. I mean, I think it might make it hard. I mean, he's a he is a sort of a COVID denier, right? I mean, he publicly acts like it doesn't exist. His convention, the most lasting impression was that it was going down at a time when there was no coronavirus. He and the vice president had events with maskless attendees that you don't see anywhere. There are right. no, I mean, most malls in America require you to wear a mask if they've reopened. Schools require you to wear a mask if they've reopened. Work. So he created this fiction, this like Disneyland of a of a of an island where there is no COVID. And now I think he may have set himself back in in trying to create that as plausible. It, it's it's so implausible he couldn't even stay COVID free with access to daily testing. So I think on the one hand, I, I think that, and I think this all happens sort of among his base, which I think people like 
you and me and all, everyone who does what we do have made a mistake in focusing on his base voter and not his coalition. I think they will admit they've struggled to reassemble the Trump coalition. The base voter, that's the voter that's with him if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. So I think the Trump base voter um, feels some sympathy for him. I think everybody feels some sympathy for him, frankly. I think every American wants their president to be healthy. Um, and, and in office and capable of carrying out the functions of the job if and when we need him to do that. So I think that's universal. And I think maybe among his base voter, maybe you start to rethink the risks of COVID, but I'm not even sure that happens. I'm not sure. I was of a mind that this cake has been baked for some time. Yeah. You look at the structure of the race and it's so implacable. So steady, I mean, yeah. it's incredible. Uh, I keep describing it as a as an earthquake-proof uh, building, you know, all these seismic things happen around it, and it ne- and the structure of the race never changes. And I think that he uh, he probably slammed the door on that on 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 it changing on Tuesday night. I think that's with his right. debate performance. The you know, I guess the only other possible thing, and I don't want to be ghoulish by speculating about the political implications, but perhaps his being ill does something for the president with the, for the, that the president doesn't do for others and couldn't do for himself, which is to make him sympathetic. Yeah. I don't think it will change people's fundamental view. But, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll see how people react to it. Um, you know, but, but I think the more likely thing is that it just brings the virus so, uh, m- more into the focus again. And the virus is just such a terrible story for him. It's such a terrible story for the country, and his failures are sort of a subset of this terrible thing the whole country is going through. And I think on the positive side, it may give him a way in to the story he hasn't been able to relate to. On the negative, it may make a virus seem even more terrifying if even the most powerful person in the country, one of the most powerful people in the world, isn't safe from it. So I, 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 I've, I've started, and just because of the jobs that we've had, you start thinking about it that way. But I, I've wondered this. I have not said this on TV, but I've wondered if, you know, after the financial crisis in 08, the, the rate, I mean, the, the 08 race was pretty locked in for a long time. McCain was yes. always behind. My belief is that he always thought he was going to lose. He understood all of Senator Obama's talents and he understood the moment. Um, we should note we were on the other side. Of we that. were on we'll talk more about side. that later. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I, I was watching the um, Al Smith speech that, um, that McCain gave uh, yes. last night. Yes, and yes. You give you watch that speech. McCain knew that Obama, President Obama, Senator Obama was going to be the next president, and you kind of can see that it looks like Obama's realizing that McCain realized in that moment he was going to lose and he was going to be president. It's this. You have a whole different feel about it when 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 you sort of look back at the way things went and. That race, too, after the financial crisis was so locked in. It was so locked in. Yes. People and, and it was it was it was very steady and stable before that, too. They were that was sort of a different time when conventions gave you sort of a push out uh, to the outer limits of yes. whatever your polling window was. But then you contracted. I mean, yes. this year that that didn't even happen. The, the conventions, for, for the most part, didn't even stretch anybody outside to that or limit. So, I mean, they, they were just so steady. So I, I think Although that- I have to tell you one one just aside on that, which you'll find interesting being on the other side and given your history. We we you know you guys scared us in the summer of 2008 into pulling down our big rallies because uh, celebrity you were, ad. 
the celebrity ad. And we took the bait and we pulled our stuff down and we went to round tables and so on. You shouldn't and, have. <laughs> and then uh, you're right. And uh, and then Sarah Palin comes along. And for the you'll remember for the first couple of weeks after uh, her uh, nomination, they were doing joint events and they were getting huge crowds. And uh, we actually were meeting the day before Lehman Brothers collapsed to talk about the fact that we saw some contraction in our polling off of the lead we had after the convention. Uh, and it, the meeting was largely about, isn't it time to start going back to doing <laughs> crowd events? And then, of course, Lehman Brothers happened and just and the, that, that dynamic seized control of the race. Hey, I want to talk about you, uh, which was my original agenda. Uh, in inviting you uh, to, to, to join me because, uh, you you know, for, you've had such an interesting journey and not one necessarily that you would have predicted growing up uh, in California. Uh, your family was not a particularly political family. You said you're, you're, I've read you, you're, your folks were sort of your dad leaned right or libertarian yeah. and your mom was sort of re Republican, independent, but yeah. it wasn't like a huge thing in your house. I guess your dad was an antique uh, dealer. Yeah, still is. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, I, I took a, a similar, I was drawn to some of the same parts of the job that you were. I mean, I was, when I was eight, I wrote a report about journalism. I ended up turning it in to Northwestern when I applied to their grad school for journalism. I really, I came at it um, more interested in political journalism. I went to Berkeley and I studied under Lowell Bergman, famous 60 Minutes producer. Um, and I interned in local TV at KPIX and KRON. And um, there were some huge stories. Um, the, the earthquake happened when I was out there, um, the big fires. And so I would hop in the van and go out with these incredible local reporters who, to me, are still the heroes of television news. You actually want to be a meteorologist at work. Yeah, well, <laughs> that has a Chicago angle. So when I moved to Chicago, I said, Jesus, I mean, I didn't own socks. You know, I was a real like California girl. I was born in Newport and raised in the San Francisco I think they're not allowed in Berkeley. Yeah, no, I didn't own socks. So I went to the J. Crew there in that water tower mall yeah. mm -hmm. with all my classmates at Medill, and they bought me this parka that I really only recently parted with. It was my first ever puffer. I bought socks, I bought boots, I had hats. Um, <laughs> And um, and I became obsessed with the weather. This California girl in Chicago, you know, where you have to like hold on to the buildings. We were on the lake um, for for a couple semesters at Medill, and I thought, oh my god, like weather's everything. In California, like nobody, no offense to the California meteorologists, but um, especially these days with all the fires. Yeah, they but got a tough one now. In Chicago, like you live and die by the weather. It also happened to be a summer, the summer of the heat waves when a whole bunch of elderly Chicagoans died. So I became weather obsessed. And I, 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 sort of when my political career started too, I started lobbying them to add a meteorology curriculum and they thought I was a nut. So <laughs> I failed. I covered politics. They sent me to Washington as part of their curriculum. And then um, I worked as a local reporter for a little bit, but you know, local reporting is shooting your own um, yeah. stories. And when you're in local news shooting your own stories, there are a lot of car accidents and drug busts. And um, and there was lighter stuff too, which I actually really liked. Um, but I, I didn't do that for long. And then I started working in politics in California. I interviewed with a Democrat and a Republican the same week and the Republican Assemblyman Bill Leonard hired me and the Democrat Cruz Bustamante did not. And so, there began my um, non-ideologically political have been career. 
yeah. And you, uh, uh, through those experiences, uh, you were there during the Pete Wilson years, right? Yeah. When he was yeah. uh, governor of California. That was an interesting period there. He had some really smart Bush 41 folks working for him, Kim and Sean Walsh. But even even then, he was so polarizing because of his support for Prop 187. On immig- yeah, yeah. Immigration. And that's when I, I sort of first started reading about this very different kind of Republican out of Texas, George Chevy Bush. It became really, I, I remember carrying around the newspaper stories about George W. Bush in the gym in Sacramento and saying, I want to go work for this guy. And um, it would be a roundabout way. I would go work for Jeb Bush first, but I ultimately found my way to that Republican. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, you, you worked in the 2000 campaign for Bush um, and you worked, th- this seems timely. This will be, um, could be important experience for you having had that experience, but you w- were down in Florida in Palm Beach County uh, during the recount. Uh, tell me about, tell me about that experience. So I think about that because that was a automatically triggered recount, right? It was within the margin. It was a, what is it? Less than 1% triggers an automatic recount in the state of Florida. So it had no resemblance. It may end up feeling like the best sort of muscle memory for what Trump is proposing, but it was triggered by a law in that state about the margin. And um, so it was a lawful recount. Both campaigns descended first on Palm Beach and then Miami and then every part of Florida for all these county recounts. Um, Jim Baker was there and famously they've made movies about this. Yes. Yes. Um, And it was just an extraordinary experience. And well, I should back up and ask you, what did you think on election night? when Gore was going to concede, then he didn't concede, and Florida flipped back and forth. Yeah, so Uh, I was on Jeb Bush's um, state government staff, and so we all just felt sick for our boss, for Jeb Bush. Um, I had worked on the Bush 43 primary, but I'd since taken a job by November mm -hmm. in in Jeb Bush's um, state of Florida staff as a communications official and we were all watching because Jeb had flown to Texas to watch election night with his brother and his family and we felt sick for Jeb we knew that Jeb wanted yeah can you imagine how uncomfortable that must have been yeah it was and and so that that was our emotion but then the calls we started getting were to to you know call in and take vacation time take leave not to do it on the state dime but to take leave and head down and see if we could help the 43 staff so i got on a plane that night and it was this is how old i am so i had a star tech because that was the cool cell phone um and i i remember and they didn't last like you had like an hour of talk time and i they said we need you to go to the airport there's a there's some charters that'll take people to different places and I said, do I have time to go home and get my cell phone charger? And they were like, um, 50-50. Yeah, go get it. And I ended up being there, you know, for 30 days. So it's a good thing I got it. But um, <laughs> but that's how that's how quick they thought it would be resolved. They thought they'd send us down there. We'd take vacation time. And we'd staff this automatic recount. It ended up being, you know, 37 days, 37 famous days. I want to ask you about a one little feature of that, that, has more meaning in the context of today because the guy has become a figure in this drama. Roger Stone, you know, he was credited with sort of organizing demonstrations and, and chaos down there. Did you have any contact with him then? 
And I didn't know that history about him, and I, I really had never heard of him until he became involved in... He'd uh, be hurt to hear you say that. <laughs> I never heard of him until I saw him in a fedora on one of Heilman's uh, uh, episodes of, of his great show, The Circus. And so I've become familiar with his... Um, with his tactics, his toolbox, if you will. I'll say this though about the demonstrations, they weren't helpful. I mean, whoever was going to win needed it to feel apolitical. I mean, that part of the campaign feeling political and like it had anything to do with brute political sort of tactics was a negative. It had to feel at that point legal and scrutinized and transparent. And that's why all the So you weren't happy about it? Well, I was such a junior staffer. I, I didn't, no one asked my opinion, but I, <laughs> I, I didn't think at the time, and I don't think in hindsight, that the, I thought the time for sort of politics was, was over. I thought, I thought it became a legal process the minute the recount started. He, uh, yeah, I, I think about it, you know, Trump obviously pardoned him. I thought it was maybe for debts rendered, uh, paying back debts, you know, not the president always does pay off his debts, but he paid off this one. But uh, then I wondered, well, when I see some of the stuff going on around the country, is Roger, is Roger still active? Uh, you know, he's on he's on Alex Jones's Infowars. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically urging armed insurrection if if uh, Trump doesn't win. So uh, it, may, it makes you uh, it makes you wonder. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Anyway, you went on uh, to the Bush staff, and you went to the White House, which is exciting. That's a pretty big leap. Um, first, tell me what it was like walking in that building for the first time. I have my own recollections, but uh, yeah, you never forget the first time you walk in, and then the last time you walk out as a staffer, right? When you hand in your hard pass, they're like indelibly marked in your brain. Um, well, I went up for the um, the Bush inauguration because by the end of the recount, it was such a short window between the end of the recount and the inauguration. We were all still, as a campaign staff, fairly very heavily invested. Um, and I, as I said, I had just returned to Jeb Bush's staff. I, I did two tours of duty with the great state of Florida and I did not plan on leaving. They had just, they had just moved me back to Florida. I came up for the inauguration and Dan Bartlett, who was, um, a very, um, had a very similar role to, to yours, uh, for George W. Bush, um, offered me a job as, uh, the director of media affairs, which is, you know, is sort of the office that deals with everyone that doesn't sit in that briefing room. And I, you know, I didn't bring clothes to interview in. I didn't pack anything more than for a weekend. And I remember calling my mom from Washington and saying, oh, they offered me a job in the White House. And she said, you can't leave Jeb Bush again. And, <laughs> and I said, but it's the White House. And, um, and that's sort of how non-political and, and, and unimpressed my, my family was and kind of remains. But um, I did. I took the job. I went down to Tallahassee. I packed my car and I drove from Tallahassee to Virginia and stayed with friends because it, it really wasn't the plan. It, took, it would take me months to find a place to live and to have time to move. But um, that period of going to work for George W. Bush and then the, the, the attacks of September 11th really is like like so so unforgettable for me it was this um this 
feeling like you were part of a White House that I believed in and still do. But it was a really hard transition. Now, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, there's all this talk about the president challenging, you know, he's setting up a legal challenge to the uh, to the election every single day. Um, and, you know, as what I remember how debilitating it was for you guys. There was no period of transition, really. You weren't particularly treated well in the transition. And, um, and you know, y- y- you arrive with this cloud hanging over your head, of uh, uh, the Supreme Court's involvement and so on. Um, and I'm thinking that was just, uh, imagine, imagine what happens now if this thing were actually thrown to the courts uh, and what that would do to the country, because that was pretty convulsive for the country. I'm not sure we ever fully recovered from 2000. I think that's right. Look, I think a lot of our, one of my hobbies, I, I, I read a lot of um, these, uh, a, a lot of parenting books. And um, because I think, I think every working, every working mom struggles with getting that, that part of their life right. Um, and, you know, I, I think there was a lot of unprocessed um, pain, unprocessed uh, conflict around the 2000 election and around the attacks of 9-11 that manifested itself in, in the country lurching from, um, you, you know, there were bitter disagreements during President Obama's presidency, but it was a a, a he, he and, and Mrs. Obama and their beautiful daughters and, and, and again, getting things done used to in and of itself be a virtue. To lurch to Trump after that, I, I thought just signaled this, this real sort of knot of, of unprocessed anger and, and pain over some combination of September 11th and everything that came after and the, and the, and the, and the really difficult and, and in some parts unsuccessful endeavors in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and all of sort of the social change that happened alongside the, the political turmoil. Um, but I, I, I think you're right. I, I think 2000 was really hard, and I think we didn't completely process it. Look, I think Ted Kennedy, standing with George W. Bush for the first piece of legislation we passed, which was an education bill, and then Max Baucus standing with George W. Bush for the first tax package. I mean, George Bush sought to govern in a bipartisan way. Cheney was kind of doing his own thing and running the Cheney <laughs> Energy Task Force and complicating those matters. But I have my notes from September 10th, 2001, and I was, you know, figured the, the Henry Waxman was investigating the Cheney Energy Task Force. So it was a, a politically tumultuous time. George W. Bush, I think, thought he was trying to govern in a bipartisan way to address some of that pain. But then 9-11 changed everything. And for a while, think the country did proceed on a largely bipartisan path. But then it, it veered um, calamitously off that that path in the in the war in Iraq the war, extremely yeah. partisan so yeah I mean it, you know the rest is history but it's not history we can escape I mean I, I think you can pull a thread to some of those traumas um, directly to Trump's rise Bush was in many ways defined by the war in, in Iraq and uh, that was as you mentioned deeply polarizing tell me about your relationship with him and uh, his relationship with his staff. And tell me what people don't know about him. I mean, look, I still can't talk about him without starting to cry. I mean, I I revered him then and I revere him now, but 
he was, like President Obama, someone who, on his part, was most drawn to the people that told him when he sucked. And I told the story last night when I was signing off about the poll impact of his first debate with John Kerry. George W. Bush in 04 had had what was largely viewed as a successful convention in New York. And at that time, success, one of the marks was uh, your bounce. And so we had a big post-convention bounce in 04. And um, the first debate came around and, and a lot of incumbent presidents bristle at preparing in the same way for a debate they're, they're, I'm being president I, you know what are you guys doing here again uh, more prep and yeah more prep he had, a, he, had a, he had a terrible debate performance against John Kerry erased all of the lead that we had built yeah, up after the, the club we had a little experience <laughs> like that in 2012 I, I mean I, it's just like a thing incumbent presidents really have a hard time making that shift for some reason not for their conventions but for those debates, yeah. um, and I don't know if it just feels beneath them or. or yeah, like I don't think they've debated for four years and not used yeah. to people being in their mug and, you know, yeah. but it, it, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think Trump broke the string on uh, last week, but. Um, well, no. I, and look, so so I had the task of going to the back. Of, we were on a bus and um, the, the news magazines had the polls that everyone sort of would chase. So it was a Friday and their their Saturday poll came out and, and we had dropped like some some appalling like nine points and matt dowd called me and he said uh you're on the bus who's doing your polling he dare polling. he said mm-hmm. sister you got to go tell him and i said oh come on said, he's almost at the white house why don't you just call him in the residence he said you're on the bus go back there and tell him so i walked to the back of the bus and i said um so you know the first polls are out he said yeah I said, he said, how much? And I said, well, we, 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 we dropped a bit. We, we dropped, um, I think, like seven in one and ten in the other. And he said, you know, we lost the post-debate spin. And I put my hands on my hips and I got ready to say, no, we didn't. You And, and he started laughing. He goes, no, I know, I know. <laughs> so, you know, he was, um, he was, he, he, George W. Bush is, is great. I loved working for him. He was a pleasure to work for. He was a pleasure to travel with. He was the greatest pleasure to staff on the reelect because um, we didn't think we were perfect. We weren't running on being perfect. We knew the country had been through a lot and we knew we had made mistakes. Um, and so it really was a, a contrast and, and we tried to make it a, a pretty humble contrast. You know, it's a choice between two things. And we made the case for former years of our boss and um, I negotiated the sort of end of it with Mike McCurry, who worked on the Kerry Edwards effort. So sort of at every turn, I, I really had um, an opportunity to contribute um, something that, that that I still sort of cherish. And and, um, and then that second term was brutal. I mean, second terms are just brutal. I went in in 05 as the White House communications director. And the first time I walked in, I took a. I, I tried to take like a week off. You know how these post-campaign vacations go. They always get blown up by something. But um, I went in to see the president and Dan Bartlett and I walked down to the Oval at the end of the year in 04. And he, Bush was staring out the window with his hands in his pockets. He just talked to Blair about Iraq. And Iraq weighed on his mind the way it weighed on the country's mind. Mm-hmm. He, he was eager to get people out of there to get to get families back together and and it was it was it was it wasn't harder for anyone other than the men and women of the military they bore the brunt of it and still do but um that burden on them weighed on him as well i think the uh, it's interesting that in his retirement he is 
it turned to painting, and he painted portraits of wounded warriors. And and uh, you know, so obviously, it's something that still lives with him. But let me ask you, and I know you've been asked this a, a hundred times before: um, Did he make a mistake in in going into Iraq? Look, he writes in decision points that the decision to go to Iraq was predicated on an intelligence assessment that everyone in the world agreed on. The United Nations, Russia, China, France, everyone agreed that Saddam Hussein had WMD. We got there and he didn't. So I don't, I don't, you, you can't argue that the case we made was bore out. It did not. Um, I think, though, when you spend your presidency... Um, with spending a lot of time on military bases, and as you said, he still spends a lot of time with veterans of that war and the and the war in Afghanistan. Um, the 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 line you, I think, what he feels is that no one sacrificed in vain. Saddam Hussein was a heinous, brutal, murderous dictator, and the world is better off without him. But I think Bush has has articulated in, in his first book that the case he made ended up not being. Um, it was just a monumental intelligence failure, and the WMD commission looked at it. I had the communications role of sort of writing the declassified version of some of those reports, and Curveball was the informant who had bad information. I mean, it's it's um, it's, it's properly a named, obviously. Yeah, it's a tragedy of, of of epic, monumental proportions that continues to color everything about what people think of the Bush presidency. You mentioned Cheney before. What was his role in, in all of that? You know this as well as I do, that um, what things look like from the outside are either totally wrong or the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, I think um, as it pertained to Iraq, what, what was visible from the outside was, was kind of the tip of the iceberg. I think on the inside he was, uh, and, and I look, I, I think his own, writings and 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 interviews bear this out i mean he had a um sort of a circle inside the executive branch paul wolfowitz and and david addington and uh scooter libby and and cheney and and they really um i I mean people sort of collapse these events at their own peril the the attacks of 9-11 the invasion of afghanistan uh, was then punctuated by the, the Bush administration adopting a doctrine of preemption. And it, it was around that doctrine that, that the invasion of Iraq um, took place. And I think, I think it, it doesn't serve the country. It certainly didn't serve us to, to collapse any of those events. Um, you know, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, but some of those arguments got really messy and conflated. It was about dealing with threats as they gathered. Uh, the bottom line is, is I, I, I think... The so it doctrine, sounds like you feel like Cheney was a, 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 a primary mover in terms of that conflation? Well, I, I think, you know, I think when you're in the government and you know the public is sort of forming some hardened ideas and they're wrong, you have an obligation to correct them. 
And I think that there were some ideas forming that were wrong. I mean, when I went to brief Sarah Palin, you know, eight years later about why her son was going to Iraq, she kept talking about 9-11. I mean, I, you know, even on, on, on one side of the ideological spectrum, the, the two were conflated. And, and, um, and I, look, I, I think people much more senior than me have written about what happened after 9-11 to us, you know, sort of the, 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 the grief of, you know, meeting all those families who lost loved ones on those airplanes. Um, you, you feel as, I mean, you guys dealt with that, I think, after Newtown in the most public way. You, you, you feel like doing nothing is not an option. You must do something to prevent that kind of, you know, tragedy from ever happening again. And so the, the some things that we did included adopting a policy of pre preemptive war, right? The doctrine of preemption was about dealing with threats to the homeland before they mm -hmm. came here. And without 9-11, I don't think we would have adopted that, that foreign policy. And without that foreign policy, we never would have gone to Iraq. Talk about uh, that day, 9-11. I know you were in the White House and um, you, you know, you've written about it. it must, that must be a day that lives in your consciousness and all the time. Yeah, I think... Um, so I mean, we, let, me, let, me, let me just interrupt and say, we all get, you know, we get these drills when you work in the White House yeah. about uh, evacuation drills, how to go to the bunker and all of that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, and you pay attention, but you don't, you can't quite imagine actually something happening. Uh, well, that you, would so force you know, that if you're a communicator, you go down and you check for Wi-Fi and printers, right? Yes. So, so like, it's you're very tactically engaged in the drills. Um, so not only do you not think it's going to happen, but you're just worried about how you're going to write a statement for the president and, and like right. print it out and hand it out. You're, you're not thinking about right. You, there, there is this um, narrowness when when you're. In, I was in a narrow role in the White House. I was just a communicator, so I I, I, I try. I didn't think about. Um, you know, why I would be in a position like that. So then when you are, um, it is surreal, but, but you still, you still sort of focus on the narrow thing that you can do. I mean, my day was, was, um, it was, I, I, communications meetings are usually around 7.30 or 8, right after senior staff. So we were meeting at 8. I had just walked back into my office when the plane hit uh, second plane hit, and so I watched it live on the Today Show. I called Dan Bartlett, who was with President Bush in Florida, and the first thing he asked me to do was pull Bill Clinton's statement from the World Trade Center bombing in '92, um, and I couldn't find anything, so I called Mike McCurry. And then what I found was that Bill Clinton didn't say anything until it happened on a Friday. He didn't say anything until the radio address. I don't even know if they still have a radio address, but we, we used to release a radio address on Saturday mornings. And so Bill Clinton didn't address it till the next day. So I called Dan and I said, Clinton didn't say anything when it happened. He said, that's impossible. So this was only eight day, eight years later, the news cycle had so accelerated and now it's accelerated 10 more times. Can you imagine not, not saying something um, until hours later? So I was trying to help um, Dan and the traveling crew with the responses from the president. And then we were evacuated probably. I told you minutes. to run. 
Yeah, they told us to take off our the Secret Service, and and people don't understand this, but they you know they protect all of us too. So they were walking through the building, getting everybody out, and they looked down at my shoes. They said, Nicole, take off those shoes and run. So we went running out the northwest gate, and. I I was a runner, a faster runner than the now. I ran so fast that I got to the top of Connecticut Avenue and I didn't see anybody I knew. So, <laughs> so I, I turned back around. I went, I rounded up my staff and I walked all the way home. I, I lived um, sort of in Upper Georgetown and I and I I rounded up most of my team and we worked out of my apartment off our cell phones. And then it was really important to President Bush that it looked like the White House was open. So we all drove back and went back to work the next day. And it was like, you know, people with guns pointed at our cars were sort of waving us into the White House parking lot. It was surreal. I mean, it must have been terrifying. I mean, obviously, if you got if you made it all the way up the hill, uh, you must have been scared. Absolutely. I, I remember calling my dad. He was getting on a plane in San Francisco. So he was up early and um, and I, he said, where are you? I said, I'm running. And I, you know, I, I don't know that a parent ever forgets it. Oh, oh my God, I can only it. imagine what yeah. they were, what what they were thinking. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You mentioned Sarah Palin. You famously were involved in that campaign, and we talked a little bit about the dynamic. I mean, John McCain, in in many ways, had a very George W. Bush was uh, was not a popular president. Uh, he was a uh, at that time uh, president of his own party, uh, and McCain uh, had a really tough road to hoe to begin with. But talk to me about you know the Sarah Palin epic because you're identified with it. You were you uh, you were involved in onboarding her. Yeah, yeah. Look, the the years soften stuff that feels personal, and and I have to say, sort of with. I mean, I guess for her, it's still pretty personal. I think she was on TV attacking us anew, pretty recently. But I, I think I think with um, some hindsight, she really she had so many skills, not like on paper skills, like razzle dazzle political talent. Um, and she is, by all you know, measure, it, it, that woman that, that that is doing it all. She's got a big family, and she had a, a really big career in politics before she was tapped. So, you know, everything that ensued was this sort of violent collision between McCain's ethos, which McCain was a more establishment Republican figure than George W. Bush ever was. So, so of course, he had people like 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 me and, and people that I work for other presidents around him, she really was the maverick. She was outside of a mold and um, she gave Kamala Harris some advice that, 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 that was pretty, pretty good. You know, keep some of your own people around you. The, the, the complicating factor with Sarah Palin is always the truth. And, and the truth was we, we welcomed her to keep some of her own people around her. And we were desperate to collaborate with them to try to figure out how to better support her. But um, look, I, I think, Sarah Palin had um, more control over her destiny than, than than she'll tell you, and I think she could have she could have dusted herself off after 08. And if if 
if Donald Trump can be nominated by the Republican Party, Sarah Palin could be nominated by the Republican Party. And if Donald Trump could win a general election, Sarah Palin could win a general election. You know, they were sort of. Well, Sarah I think Palin. that if you if you think back to uh, that time and the crowds that she drew and uh, we all remember Senator McCain having to wrestle with some of his own crowds uh, who were, uh, you know, who thought Obama was a Muslim and that was a bad thing and he wasn't really an American and so on. And she fanned uh, some of that. She uh, she was Trump before Trump and, and more attractive and more talented so um, she could have been president after McCain. That was the way the party was going, but it would take four more years. You know, the party sort of lurched back and landed on an establishment figure in Mitt Romney, but there's no reason why a party that so wholly embraces Donald Trump couldn't ever, wouldn't have wholly embraced Sarah Palin. You've acknowledged you didn't vote in that election. That's how strongly you felt about her and the possibility of her becoming president. Yeah, and and um, I think there was this sort of sick feeling that I'd been part of it. You know, I, I get to talk to, and I, and I know um, Miles Taylor's over at CNN, I get to talk to some of these folks that have left the Trump administration recently, and they're out there really effectively telling their stories of what they've seen. But it, it takes years to sort of, get right with your universe or your God or whatever it is when you feel like you were part of something really bad for the country, which is what they sound like they feel they were a part of. And, and that's how I felt after Palin. You, you were f featured prominently in uh, the Game Change book and the film that followed. And you, uh, Steve Schmidt, you guys weren't invited to McCain's funeral. And I, I imagine that must have been painful. Yeah, but, you know, he was such a sort of servant to the country. If, if not being there relieved some desire to sort of eke out a measure that felt good to the family, to not have any anyone that was a part of that there, like it, it felt good to do that. I mean, being there to pay your respects, if the best thing you can do to show your respect is not be there or not be invited, that that is what you can do. And so... Um, my admiration for him is, is um, you know, limitless. And um, having worked for him um, was, was was still, you know, I mean, the, the losing campaigns always shape you more. I think being taken down um, professionally by a defeat is sometimes where the, 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 the re-educating and the relearning goes. So being part of that effort, even though it was, incredibly difficult was was still a tremendous honor i have to feel that though that that was personally painful i'm sure you wanted to be there yeah you know, it was a sad year i'd been at barbara bush's funeral and i'd covered bush 41's funeral and it, it just felt like and and it kind of still feels like all of the good guys we were losing all the good guys and i thought mccain just was so brilliant um with Trump. I mean, he, when he died, there was nobody left calling Putin a murderous thug. Think about that. Mm -hmm. There's no one to go get a soundbite from anymore in the Republican party who will call Putin what he is, which is yeah. a murderous thug. Yeah. So I maybe mean, the, Romney. The, yeah. I mean, the, the pain was, it was, it was personal and it was, it was for the country and it was for the Republican party that I'd served and, and worked for. I mean, imagine your party became unrecognizable to you. And then the one figure who sort of still carried the mantle of the things you cared about when you were a Democrat died. 
Um, not getting invited to the funeral is sort of like the, the cherry on the Sunday, but, but, but their loss is the pain. I had uh, the opportunity to get to know him after that election and uh, really, really admired him. Um, and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to do that before we lost him. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you see the passing of Ted Kennedy, the passing of John McCain. There's, you know, there was an era that passed uh, with them. And certainly in the Republican Party, McCain's loss is... is uh, uh, is felt. You went on to, uh, you wrote, as I pointed out, you, you've written novels. You did a stint on The View. Uh, and um, that, that was interesting. You, you apparently weren't, you weren't feisty enough. You weren't uh, uh, pointed enough. You weren't uh, enough of a counterpoint to, the, to, to Whoopi and Joy and the left on the show. Uh, for their liking, is that is that what happened? I mean, I think so. I, I mean, I think that I, you know, when you come to politics, you have at least some notion that. Um, I mean, pe- people in politics are sort of famously blunt, right? They don't hesitate to make staff changeups. They don't hesitate to, um, you know, move people around in, in a in a White House. And um, I had a feeling in the Bush world that uh, if not a meritocracy at least it was all in the up and up you you land in television and just there's a different world and um, it was a casting and i think that was lost on me having never worked in television and it was a casting that they didn't like so they changed it and again it it felt deeply personal but at the end of the day um, it was such an it was sort of like a year abroad you know like i napped (laughs) in the middle of the day and i ate dinner at 10 and i um did things I never did before, um, but I had to come back to earth afterward. And, you know, I I never thought I would make it at The View. So when I took the job, I negotiated the first ever View deal with a side hustle at MSNBC. So when I was on The View, most days I started um, at MSNBC on Morning Morning Joe, and I still had the privilege of filling in for Joe or Mika when they were out. And... um, and so when they fired me, I just I just sort of redirected um, all that time. I, I added a role as a Today Show contributor and got to cover the 2015 primary and the 2016 general election for the Today Show. So, but it it was it, it, you know it was like getting dumped. It was it was uh, it hurt my feelings and it made me feel bad. And, it's, and, and the thing is, when you get dumped, you don't usually get dumped on a national stage. So right, it's like right. it, it's it's not just hurtful but it's also very public yeah it's, it's like public rejection and you know you're a you're a high you're a high achiever let's <laughs> let's just be clear about that and for high achievers who are used to doing well even if it's not your the, the fact that you weren't pointed enough conservative is no crime but well and, and here's the deal i didn't play appointed conservative on cable news where i appeared every day so i kind of thought they knew what they were getting in me my career though has always been such a, a sort of like a jagged um you know i mean i there have been achievements but there's always been a stumble and so i've never sort of felt like oh i've got this so I, I i never moved anything into my dressing room at the view i had nothing so when they fired me like i it took me five minutes to leave i mean i, I never trusted it 
And, and I sort of, you know, carried that to MSNBC. I didn't want an office when I first had my own show. So I used to leave all my stuff. I had like a clothing rack and all these stilettos in my EP's office. And, and I think after about nine months, he was like, do you think we could get you an office? Just, you know, you can write in here, but maybe, and I, and he would get up and I would like write my scripts on his computer at the beginning of my show. Cause I was like, no, I don't want to jinx it. No promos, no mugs, no office. Cause I, I didn't trust it. Cause I really, you know, I, I've always had a lot of ups and downs professionally. You have this show, this great show, Deadline White House, and you're on a station that is avowedly a progressive station, or at least it's certainly seen that way. And and I'm wondering, you know, about your own journey. And uh, could you have imagined yourself sitting where you are now, uh, working where you are now, 20 years ago when you were you know, working for George W. Bush? I mean, three years ago, no. I mean, I just work for really special people, I guess I have to say, who, um, you know, Phil Griffin sort of rolls the dice on people who are, are really untested. And I would put myself in that category. I'd never read a teleprompter before um, January of 2017. And Brian Williams um, was desperate for a night off and and asked me to fill in. And I I think there were probably some clashes behind the scenes. Nicole can't read a teleprompter, and that would have been true. So I just, um, I, I feel like I've been really lucky to yeah. have some champions at, at the network who thought I could do something I'd never done before. But um, it, it manifests itself in a lot of gratitude and a lot of... Um, uh, you know, still trying to prove myself. I mean, I, I, I read all the news every night. I write my own, you know, scripts and I do my own reporting because I feel like I don't bring to it decades of broadcasting experience. So I, I try to make up for that on the other side. And but the real, the, 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 I, and look, it's a great outlet and it's, you do wonderful work. There's uh, my question is really just in terms of your own orientation toward the world, has the world changed or have you changed? <laughs> Oh, I have to think about that. That's a good question. I, I think I work so much I don't think about that. I mean, look, I, 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 on any given day, some conservative is attacking the shit out of me and some lefty is attacking me for still loving Bush. And I figure like, well, okay, that's, that's a decent day. I mean, look, it, 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 I, I know that people project onto MSNBC that it's this incredibly progressive place, but I came up at MSNBC working for Joe Scarborough, who's a pretty conservative Republican, um, and and literally never feeling anything other than um, sort of in demand. So so it, it is a a com- it is a home to I think you know Rachel is our son and 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 Joe is the other son around which you know my world at MSNBC has always rotated. Um, and it, 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 look, it's more like an artist colony, you know, you know, Phil sort of lets us all go and, you know, Rachel sculpts and, and Joe and Mika paint. And, and, you know, I don't know what I do. I, I get on and write and, and everyone, everyone sort of does what they do. And it, it's very, um, everyone, everyone is sort of given the mandate of building their audience. Um, but there's not a ton of micromanaging how that's done. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm part of this left wing, you know, cable channel but I, I understand that that is it's that is it's sort of space no no and I, and I and I don't mean to to say it that way but 
there is no doubt that if you look at sort of the demo and so on, MSNBC attracts a certain kind of viewer. Fox attracts a certain kind of viewer. CNN attracts a certain kind of viewer. And I want to just ask this uh, as we go out about just the the sort of balkanization of American media and not just cable, but, you know, because of social media and so on. I mean, one of the things that really worries me a lot is um, just how deeply we are divided. And obviously Trump has uh, has exploited that and has exacerbated it. Uh, but part of it is that we live in our media silos uh, and, um, and, you know, we, we, we don't have a shared, you know, when I was young, we used to have a shared media world. And so we basically were arguing about the same things. And that is not the case anymore. And does that worry you? I mean, it worries me and I'm on cable TV too. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, you know, you go back to sort of the Bush years and, and I'm sure you feel the same way. And it was, everyone led with the same story, but uh, Fox was usually a little more forgiving, not always. MSNBC would conclude by calling us the worst people in the world and CNN would show someone screaming at each other with with those two debates. Um, So it was heading in this direction 20 years ago. Um, I think the, I think TV is the symptom though. Like I think the fact is that before anyone clicks any of us on TV, um, they, they've already been, yeah, they're making a choice. Yeah. And it's, and it's everywhere. It's, it's on their Facebook feed. It's on their Twitter feed. It's, um, you know, I mean, Matt Dowd in 2000 sort of, um, at the time it was an innovation. You guys went far beyond it. This idea of micro-targeting, of sort of sending people information where they go for information, whether it's, you know, their, their gym or if they're, you know, talking to runners in runner's world, talking to hunters in hunter's world. Um, I mean, uh, that to me, sort of talking to people where they are, precipitated the balkanization. And I think TV is a symptom of it. Um, I think the accelerant though, is a president who has no shame about lying and no sort of check on um, how far he's willing to go for an adversary. I mean, he is now indiscernible from Russian disinformation. And I think- Well, and they're taking cues from him. Right. They, like, I mean, he's put them out. I said, they, they, but this last night, that yesterday, that that the Russian trolls are going to need a new jam because he's doing all the work in 2020 that fell to them in 2016. Now they just retweet him. So I, I think that you, you correct some of this by going back to a president who adheres to at least just that really basic norm of trying to tell the truth. Um, and and then I think you you, you, you you sort of has to start there. But I mean, when, when you've got a president with what millions of followers and a network totally, you know, and, and, it, and it's also indiscernible whether it's state run media or media run state. So when you've got sort of a through line there, I think that is where a lot of the damage is done. Yeah, I hope that we can repair some of it. I, you know, like you, I have great reverence for these institutions of our democracy. And uh, one of the things I always say about your old boss was how much I appreciated the kindness that he extended us in the transition in 2008, did everything he could to get us off to a good start, personally encouraged me in in an interaction that we had. Um, I'll never forget 
that interaction. And, what did he say? Uh, he said, well, we, <laughs> we were in the speaker's office before the inauguration, and then he came in, and I was on television that morning. I said, Mr. President, I've been on television talking about you this morning. He said, I don't watch TV. He doesn't. Um, <laughs> and so I said, well, let me tell you what I said. I said, uh, the way you guys have handled this transition and you personally was an act of true patriotism, and I'm really deeply grateful for it. And he uh, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Axel, I've been watching you, which made me wonder if he doesn't watch TV, where's he been watching me? But <laughs> I, I suspected maybe he was, a f maybe turned it on every once in a while. But he, um, he said, uh, you know, you're all right, and, and you're going to do well here. He said, but my only advice for you is just drink in every second because it's going to be the ride of your life and it's going to go by faster than you'd ever think. And uh, it was just a wonderful, warm exchange. And I mean, it's a, literally something I will remember for the rest of my life. And it said a lot to me about who he is uh, as a person. And I disagree. Uh, you and I could have uh, debates and we probably have had debates about some aspects of the policies of George W. Bush. Uh, but um, it's important to me who a person is, and uh, it's important to me if they uh, if they have reverence for these institutions, and um, and he 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 did, and that's what makes this presidency different. Yeah, I think that's what makes it excruciating. You know, I have a question for you. So I watched Obama's speech at Biden's convention, and I thought he spoke from this sort of well of despair that people who love institutions feel from watching um, this president and this administration. And, and I recognized it in the people I worked with, and that largely national security officials, because our administration was so dominated by national security issues. So um, what, what did you think about Obama's speech? Where that came I, from? I thought I thought that it was unique in the annals of uh, convention speeches. It came at a time of crisis for the country. The fact that we were it was a Zoom convention, essentially. And he gave what amounted to a presidential address. Uh, it wasn't about it wasn't about party. Um, it was about country. It was about democracy. Uh, and he deeply believes that, you know, um, he, he you know, from the time the country first met him in 2004 at the Democratic Convention in Boston, he's spoken about what truly makes America different and makes America great. And uh, I th he feels that that's at risk now. And uh, he was very blunt about it. I, I thought it was an, an extraordinary uh, speech, not because uh, he's my friend and not because I work for him, but uh, just because I think he did what the moment uh, required. But I admire all the things that you do and um, really, really appreciate you making the time to sit down with me. I admire and You're one of the few people who I... So Dana Bash is my best friend, so I watch a lot of CNN. Yeah, but great, I always shush, shush everybody to hear what you're going to say. And we turn up the volume and we wow. quote you all the time. Brian Williams does as well. So we're big fans. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Good to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.